Good morning. My name is Brian Parks. I'm a member here at Redeemer Church of Dubai. I just recently stepped off of the elder board uh, after serving for six years, along with Dave Furman and a former elder named Max Stiles. Uh, The three of us and a number of you who are still in the room, six years ago we planted Redeemer Church of Dubai, coming out of the United Christian Church of Dubai, which meets in Jebel Ali. And look what God has done. We started with about 100 people and now the room is filled with almost 1,000 people. It's amazing. Well, just like UCCD, Redeemer Church wants to be a church that plants other churches. And some of you may know that within the next year... Redeemer Church is going to be planting three churches, in fact. One in Beirut, Lebanon, one in Alain, in Abu Dhabi. And the church that I will be transitioning to as the senior pastor will be named Covenant Hope, and it will be planted in the region of Barsha, somewhere around there, in that side of Dubai. Very excited about it. Planting churches is one of the most important ways of reaching a people and a place and a country with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'll be telling you more about that next week when I come back and preach to you from the following passage, the passage that follows this passage this morning. So I look forward to telling you a little bit more about that. But be praying, be praying for these church plants that God will use them for his glory in this place. Let me pray for just a moment as we turn our attention to the scripture. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord. O Lord, you are our rock and you are our redeemer. Amen. The week before Ramadan began, Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed, president of the UAE and ruler of Abu Dhabi, ordered the release of 1,010 inmates who were serving sentences in Abu Dhabi prisons. Shortly afterwards, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid, vice president of the UAE and ruler of Dubai, also pardoned and ordered the release of 720 inmates that were serving sentences in Dubai prisons. That was quickly followed by Sheikh Saud bin Sakr al-Qasimi of Ras al-Khaimah, ordering the release of 247 prisoners. And I suspect that in the other four emirates throughout the UAE, there were also other prisoners who were released just prior to Ramadan. In each of these cases, the rulers not only released them, but ordered the paying off of their debts. Many of them probably had insurmountable fines that they would not be able to pay off or perhaps they owed money due to financial dealings that had gone bad and had ended with them being put in prison. You know, it is an incredibly charitable and kind act that we see regularly happening in this country and in the countries around during and before Ramadan. It's incredible. I can't even imagine how these men and women's lives have been changed, and their families as well. They've been given a new lease on life, a new, fresh start. Their slate has been wiped clean. How do you think these nearly 2,000 men and women feel about the rulers who pardoned them? Yeah, they feel good. (laughs) They are so thankful, indescribable gratitude and thankfulness 
It's likely that they have perhaps even gone to visit those rulers and thank them personally. They've sent them letters and messages. Perhaps they've hung a picture of the ruler in their homes just to remember what happened last week, the week before Ramadan. They'll never forget this time. They'll never forget what was done for them. People who are forgiven great debts typically respond with great gratitude. And it's most true for people who receive the forgiveness of God, not just the forgiveness of a ruler. They become lovers of God, lovers of Christ. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than in our passage today. If you don't have it already opened, uh, I'd encourage you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. It's also printed in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible with you, although I would encourage you to be regularly bringing a Bible with you, whether it's a paper Bible, old school, or you bring a Bible on your phone. But do open it to Luke chapter 7, verse 36, because we're going to be looking down at these verses as we move through the passage and explore it. Now, the main thrust of this passage, the main thing that this encounter that Jesus has teaches us that forgiven sinners overflow with love for Jesus. Forgiven sinners overflow with love for Jesus. As we work down through the passage, we're going to take a look at two of the characters that are in this passage. There's more than that in the passage, but we're going to focus on two in particular. The first, and this could be the outline if you're taking notes, the forgiven sinner who loves. The forgiven sinner who loves. And secondly, the loving Savior who forgives. The loving Savior who forgives. The forgiven sinner who loves and the loving Savior who forgives. Well, leading up to our passage today, in the chapters and verses prior to chapter 7, verse 36, Jesus has come on the scene. He's announced His gospel, His good news. He's chosen His disciples. He's taught on the top of a mountaintop about what life is like in the kingdom of God. He has been performing miracles which show his power and his compassion. And all of this points to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one that God had promised for so many centuries before to send to save his people. And as we enter into verse 36, we see that Jesus has been invited to a Pharisee's home for dinner. It's a dinner scene. Now, if you're a new Christian and you're not familiar with the Bible, or maybe you're not even a new Christian, you're not a Christian, and you're here, you've come to learn about what Christianity is all about, you might wonder, what in the world is that one word, Pharisee? What is a Pharisee? Well, a Pharisee was a religious leader who focused on the law of God. They focused on the law. Well, this Pharisee, we later we learned that his name is Simon, he's offered dinner to Jesus, and of course that was and still is one of the most basic forms of hospitality. And we read further in verse 36 that Jesus is reclined at the table, as was typical in that day, and and would be true for many of our local friends, perhaps, as they eat during Ramadan, they break the fast at Iftar. Maybe they're all gathered around a very low table, and around that low table is positioned a number of cushions, 
And so when they come to eat there, they would actually lay down. They would recline on their side and they would reach over and get the food with their right hand perhaps. And their feet would extend away from the table. And so that's the position that Jesus and all the other guests are in that are at this table in Simon's home. In addition to that, you should know that because Simon was likely a man of some social standing in the community, it's likely that his home was open and that there were other people in the house there, not just the guests who were around the table, perhaps, perhaps other townspeople. And there's talking and there would be laughing, there would be eating, there would be telling stories, of course, anything that you would find at a happy dinner party that you would have even at your own home. And then Luke draws our attention to the entrance of someone to the dinner party who doesn't belong there. And he draws our attention there with the word, and behold. When Luke says, behold, he means everybody's head turned at that dinner. And in walks a woman of the city. She's a sinner, Luke tells us. Likely she's a well-known prostitute from that town. It seems that everyone would have known who she is. Simon certainly knew who she was. And as soon as she walked into the room, heads would have turned, conversations and laughter and stories would have turned to whispers. And she makes her way through the crowd and she stands at the feet of Jesus. And she's weeping. She's crying. And it's not just a trickle of tears. It's a torrent. It's a river of tears. And now she's down on her knees. And she's sobbing. She's heaving with her crying. Luke tells us in verse 38 that she cried enough for her tears to wet Jesus' feet. And not only that, but then she lets her hair down and she begins to wipe His feet with her hair. And with her, in addition to that, she has a flask of ointment or perfume, and it's in alabaster. So everyone would have known there that it was expensive. Perhaps she bought it with the wages from her scandalous work. Eventually, she's even kissing his feet. And she's pouring this ointment, expensive perfume all over his feet. <laughs> now, I know that you have been in a room before, just like I have, where someone begins to cry uncontrollably. It draws attention, doesn't it? Everyone hushes. Everyone can't help but watch. And you begin to think, boy, I wish I could help. But also, boy, I wish I could leave the room. <laughs> it's that kind of tension that's in the room at this point in time. People want to leave, but they want to see what's happening. It's so strange because Jesus is just letting this happen. In fact, he seems to be welcoming it. Maybe they're asking to themselves, uh, why is Jesus letting her do this to him? Does she owe him money or maybe he owes her money? Or, God forbid, could he have been a former customer of hers? She's crying, she's kissing, she's wiping his feet. And then Luke tells us in verse 39, he turns our attention to Simon the Pharisee. And we get to see into the mind of Simon, what he's thinking. He's someone who has had hard and unanswered questions about this Jesus, and now they're being answered. 
The text tells us that Simon said to himself, in other words, he, he thought in his mind, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now we know why Jesus was invited to this dinner party. This wasn't just a simple act of kindness, a show of respect for Jesus. This was an inquest about who Jesus was. Simon wanted to know if this Jesus could possibly be the prophet that everyone was saying he was. Yes, there were the miracles that he was doing, but his teaching was strange and actually self-centered. His followers were fishermen and women. And he's not from Jerusalem. And by the way, what other Pharisee did he study under? And who's endorsing him? These are the kinds of questions that Simon likely had when he invited him. And now Simon has the proof. Prophets are men of God and they do not spend time with sinners like her. So therefore, he's not a prophet. Well, in verse 40, Jesus answers Simon's thoughts. (laughs) Of course, reading minds, that's the kind of thing that prophets and most often God does. Psalm 139 verse 2 says, You, God, discern my thoughts from afar. Jesus read his mind. And he wants to tell Simon something. Simon says, sure. Tell me something. Jesus launches in to a fictitious story about two men who owed money to a moneylender. Of all things, with this happening in the room. It's just amazing. Simon must have been thinking to himself, why this story right now with this going on? Jesus told the story about the one man who owed 500 denarii, which was the currency of the day, and it would have equaled about a year and a half of wages. And there was another man who owned just 50 denarii. That was about a month and a half of wages. Neither of them could pay their debt. And so the moneylender forgave them. He wiped the slate clean for them. And Jesus turns to Simon and he asks him, Who would have loved the money lender more. Which of the men, Simon? Simon answers him correctly. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus tells him in verse 43, You have judged rightly. Now you'll notice that Simon judges the parable rightly, but he is grossly misjudging Jesus. And now it's Jesus' turn to do the judging. Jesus applies the parable to the current situation. He explains for the woman and for Simon and for everyone else in the room to hear what is going on. In a powerfully moving act, Jesus turns towards this woman and he fixes his approving eyes on her and he begins to speak and publicly rebuke Simon the Pharisee. He says, You gave me no water, but she has not stopped crying on my feet and wiping my feet with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet. You gave me no oil for my head, but she has poured 
this precious ointment all over my feet. What a contrast. What a public affirmation of this despised woman. Jesus lifts her up as the example to follow. And Simon is publicly rebuked for his attitude. And Jesus goes on to further announce what produced this, these lavish acts of love and honor and affection. You see, Jesus says, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. He announces it for everyone to hear in the room as if there would be any doubt. He's saying, her sins are forgiven. You should treat her like she's not sinned. But a question comes to our mind, perhaps, as you read this little parable and you heard Jesus explain it. Which came first, actually? Were her sins forgiven because she loved Jesus? In other words, did she come in and she show these acts of devotion to Jesus? And he saw it and he said, okay, I'm going to forgive you because you've shown so much love to me. Or did he forgive her sins... And that in itself produced the loving response in her. Dear friends, it is so important that you get the order right. It is so important. It's of eternal importance. And not just for your salvation. It's important for your joy and for your contentment in God. You see, the key to understanding which came first is to first look at the parable. In the parable, which comes first? The love or the forgiveness? No, it's the forgiveness. The moneylender forgives the debts, and then the former debtors love him as a result. And it's as well shown in verse 47. Jesus confirms. He says, he who is forgiven little loves little. Her faith and the forgiveness that comes through it is the root of, And her love is the fruit. Her faith and the forgiveness that comes through it is the root. And her love is the fruit that grows out of it. Listen, it's as simple as this. Think about yourselves and your employers. You work hard all month. You put in the hours. You accomplish great things for the company. And you come at the end of the month to your employer with your handout. You rightfully want to be paid. You deserve it. You merited it. Now, I know some of you are not being paid. We're praying for you. You need to stand fast and continue to hope in the Lord. But someone who works deserves to be paid at the end of the prescribed time. But what if your employer were the kind of employer that would just come to you randomly during the week, during the month, and say, you know what, I'm just going to give you a thousand dirhams. And the next week they come and they just say, I'm just going to give you 3,000 dirhams. It's not for anything you did. I'm just going to give you 3,000 dirhams. And if this kept happening, which situation, in which situation would you love your employer more? You would love the employer who gave you the free gifts. The free gifts that you didn't deserve. To be paid at the end of the month is merely to get what you deserve. She got a free gift of forgiveness. Who 
of you this morning, perhaps sitting in this room, is thinking that you can't turn to Christ just yet. You can't give your life to Him until you've cleaned things up, until you've made changes, until you've reformed your ways and made yourself presentable to Him and done enough good things in order for Him to forgive you. Who of you is thinking that? Beware. Beware of this kind of thinking. This is not what God is like. You see, if you try to clean up your life before you come to Him in faith, you'll forever remember what? Not the gift that He gives. You'll remember the work that you did to get it. Your salvation will rest in your mind on your works. And your works will fail you. Depending on our good deeds to win us forgiveness from God is actually an act of great pride and rebellion against God. It doesn't honor Him. It imagines that our good deeds can somehow cancel out our former sins. It is offensive to Him, brothers and sisters, to come with anything in our hands thinking that we've done enough to earn His forgiveness. Listen, this is a timely message, an important lesson, not just for us to learn for ourselves, but to learn for the people around us. Right now, in this region, millions of people, some of them our friends and neighbors, are trying their best to show God their devotion to Him in order for Him to forgive them, to wipe their slate clean. We need to know that the Scripture teaches that this is not righteousness. It doesn't produce righteousness. In fact, what it produces is self-righteousness. We must pray for them. We must pray for them. Pray for opportunities to tell them of the perfect righteousness that comes from God through Christ alone. Redeemer Church of Dubai, I want to encourage you during this important season right now, To be asking respectful questions of your friends. Perhaps asking them, what does Ramadan mean to you? What does it accomplish for you, friend? And if you have the opportunity, if God provides the opportunity, speak with them about the Jesus that you know. Perhaps even show them this passage in Luke. Tell them that you heard it and read it this past weekend in church. Particularly show it to the women in your life. I think they'll be touched. Tell them about the good news of the free forgiveness that Jesus offers. You know what? Many of us were brought here by jobs to this country, either in recent years or many decades ago. But I'm convinced we, the leadership of Redeemer Church of Dubai, are convinced that one of the main reasons that God has brought you and I here, if you are a Christian, is for you to share this good news of free forgiveness from Jesus with the people of this land. I encourage you to do that with great boldness and courage, especially during this season. Well, before she entered the room, this woman had been forgiven prior to this scene. Maybe she'd had a previous personal encounter with Jesus. Maybe she'd simply been on the outskirts of one of his teaching sessions And she believed what he said. Maybe she was there in Luke chapter 5 where the paralyzed man gets lowered down through the roof into the middle of the room. And Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
And she believed it for herself. Maybe that's what happened. You know what? It can be that simple for you as well. I encourage you, if you are attempting to come to Jesus with something in your hand to merit or earn his forgiveness, set it aside. Set it aside. Come empty-handed and trust in this Jesus. Trust in what he has done. Trust in his forgiveness. Well, we need to maybe address Simon as well. Was Simon perhaps represented in the parable by the second moneylender, the one that had a debt of 50 denarii forgiven? Was it just that Simon had been forgiven less than the woman? I think not. I think Simon hadn't been forgiven for anything. Because when we look in the passage, what do we see is the source of her forgiveness. Yes, it's Jesus, but it is her faith in Jesus. It tells us towards the end of the passage, does Simon have faith in Jesus? No, he doesn't. In fact, Simon right here and now is convinced that Jesus isn't even a prophet, much less the Savior, the Messiah. Sadly, Simon has yet to see with the eyes of faith that Jesus can forgive. Some of you, perhaps in this room as well, are not sure where you stand with God. You don't know. And you're looking inside your heart. Maybe you're considering this woman as she's pictured in this scene. And you ask yourself, do I see any love for Jesus in my life? Because that was her response to his forgiveness. And you say, do I respond to Jesus like that? How do I know if I love Jesus? I can't see him. How do I know if I love him? Well, I want to ask you, how do you know if you love anyone? What about your spouse or your children, your close friends or your fellow church members with whom you've covenanted? How do you know if you love them? Well, you look out for their interests above your own. Or you sacrifice for their good. You consider them. You give of your time and your energy and your attention to them. You tell them that you love them verbally. You feel and show affection for them or you want to be with them. And guess what? It's the same for Jesus if you love him. It's the same. You look out for his interests above your own, his concerns, his priorities. You give of your time and your attention and your wealth for the building up of the church, His beloved. You sacrifice for His namesake. You're proud of knowing Him. You're willing to burst into a party and be embarrassed because you're associated with Him. You tell Him that you love Him in prayer. I want to ask you, when was the last time that you said to Jesus, I love you, Jesus, in prayer. Tell him that. Speak to him. People whose sin is forgiven by God will necessarily overflow with love for him, just like this woman. She is the example on display. But we read about other examples as well, down in verses 2 and 3 in chapter 8. 
Luke highlights other women who have, been, who have experienced the forgiveness of Jesus. And they're all from varying life experiences. We see in verses 2 and 3 that there's Mary Magdalene. She had seven demons cast out of her. <laughs> and then there's Joanna, who was the wife of King Herod's household manager. She was a woman of social standing for sure. And Susanna and many others. And guess what? They're wealthy. And they're with Jesus. They're with Him. And they're sacrificing for Him. They loved Him too, just like this woman. You know, we learn one thing by this focus that Luke has, this this microscope on Jesus and His relationship with women. We learn that women are important to God. Some of you women in the room may have grown up in situations or lived in situations where someone communicated to you that as a woman you were less important than men. You were less loved by God. Jesus corrects that. Jesus loves women just like He loves men. Both are made in the image of God. Both are of equal dignity and worth to God. And if you are a woman, I want to encourage you that you have great value to Him. You can contribute to God's purposes in this world. Follow Him. Trust in Him. Sacrifice and live for Him. At the end of this scene in Simon's house, Luke turns our attention from the woman who is a forgiven sinner who loves Jesus to Jesus himself. He becomes the focus and he is the loving Savior who forgives. That's the second point in this simple outline. A loving Savior who forgives. He becomes the center of attention. See it in verse 49. The questions turn from who is she to who is he? His compassionate treatment of her was amazing, but it's his declaration of the power to forgive sins that stuns the crowd that's there at the dinner party. He says in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. Maybe you're here this morning and you see that your love for God has grown cold. You remember a time when you loved God zealously. You wanted to be with Him. You sacrificed for Him. But it's not so right now. Your heart feels a little bit lifeless. You're having trouble even wanting to go and be with Him. You had trouble coming this morning because you feel far from God. How do you cultivate a greater love for this Jesus? How do you see that fire and passion for Him well up in your heart again? Well, from this passage, we know at least one thing. Forgiveness precedes and produces love for God. So more forgiveness equals more love for God. I want to encourage you, think about your sin first. Recognize where Jesus brought you from, the sinful life He brought you from, whether it was self-righteousness or irreligiousness. Recognize your sin and then quickly turn and look to Jesus who holds out forgiveness. 
It's been said, for every one look at your sin, look ten times to Jesus. He forgives. A sure way to have our hearts grow cold to God is to forget the sins that He's forgiven us of. And to think that our sins are minor and unimportant. Easy now, perhaps, for God to forgive. Well, yeah, it was easy for God to forgive me back then when I was so obviously sinful. But now I've done so much for Him. No. 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 Every single sin, even that we continue to commit. Sins in our heart. Sins in our speech. Sins in our actions still need to be covered by the blood of Jesus. Maybe this past week, it was a lustful look. That sin needs to be covered by the blood of Jesus. Maybe it was a root of bitterness, perhaps even towards someone in this room, that you are holding on to a lack of forgiveness for them. That's sin. Perhaps it was a crossword that you've spoken with your children or with your spouse. Or maybe if you are one of the youth, it was with your parents or a classmate. Jesus tells us that every person will be held accountable for every word they spoke. That's sin. It's sin that's condemnable before God. And each one of those sins deserves death because He is an infinitely holy God that we have sinned against. James 2 verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for the whole of it. You break one part of it, you've broken it, the law. Yours and my sin is just as bad as the sins of this woman in the passage. Our sins are just as bad as hers. And yours and my sins are just as bad as the first sin of Adam and Eve that plunged the whole human race into the predicament that we're in, the lostness that we experience, the separation and enmity with God. We commit the same kinds of sins. Ask the Lord to give you the blessed conviction of the Holy Spirit. And when He does, when you see your sin, take it to this merciful Savior. Take it to Him. You know, there's one question that I haven't answered as we looked through this passage. How can Jesus forgive? Can He just wave a wand, wave His hand, and the sins go away? No. Even though He's God, Jesus had to do something in order for these sins to be forgiven. And if we follow Him through the book of Luke, we reach to Luke chapter 23. And it's in Luke 23 that Jesus is condemned by the rulers, Pharisees, like Simon himself perhaps. He's tortured. He's hung on a cross. And He dies there. When Jesus did that on the cross, Jesus was paying the penalty for our sin. That's how He can forgive. And so when Jesus looked at this woman and said, your sins are forgiven, He was looking forward to the day He would hang on that cross. And He did it for her. 
And He did it for you and I if you will only trust Him. You know, being pardoned from a prison sentence is an amazing thing to have happen in your life. It's a wonderful gift. But it pales in comparison to being pardoned by God. Jesus is indeed a loving Savior who forgives. And by His grace, we can become forgiven sinners who overflow with love for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and praise You that You sent Your Son, Jesus, to live a perfect life and to die on the cross and then to be raised again to new life so that we, sinners, and we have many, can be forgiven. Lord, I pray that You would give us the gift of faith and repentance and fill us with great joy and overflowing love for you as a testimony to the gospel. In Christ's name, amen.